even if you are not consciously afraid of snakes, there is enough of a reaction to snakes that psychologists can actually measure this in a lab environment. This doesn't happen with cyber. So what we find with cyber is that individuals can say, I know there is a threat. I know that I am under attack and yet I I'm, do nothing. You get anxiety instead of fear. Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience Podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management. And I'm Richard Syerson, Chief Risk Officer. In order to elicit fear, catastrophic language is often used when describing cyber events. The problem is that this language can then distract cybersecurity leaders from the foundational, ordinary defense steps that lead to everyday success. Cyber doesn't look like Armageddon. It doesn't look like 9-11. It doesn't look like Pearl Harbor. It looks like a termite infestation, (laughs) quietly eating at the foundation that you don't see on a day-to-day basis until your foot goes through the floor. So we're focused on the wrong thing. And by focusing on the big event, all the little termites continue to eat away at the foundation because they're not the big event you're looking for. This is one of the most prevalent struggles in the cybersecurity industry today. But shifting the focus from the wrong things to the right things is a complicated process especially when it comes to the government's important role. Luckily for us, there are experts dedicated to understanding the human behavior that creates these cyber events so that we can implement policies that prepare us for the future. I study technology and usually national security and often from a political psychology lens. So I look a lot at emerging technology, cyber, unmanned systems, and sometimes artificial intelligence. And I look at how humans interact with these things and how that ends up affecting uh, governance, international relations, war, (laughs) wins war, how they fight war. Jacqueline Schneider is a Hoover Fellow, the director of the Hoover Wargaming and Crisis Simulation Initiative, and an affiliate with Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. And I came to this through, I'm a PhD from George Washington University in political science, um, but I had previously been uh, an active duty Air Force officer. And so my experience there in the Air Force and working with different technologies, emerging technologies there, really inspired a lot of the work I do now. Jacqueline's work in cybersecurity impacts how policies are shaped and legislation is passed. These policies inform security and in some cases can threaten it. But culture and the landscape of industry also shape legislation. For Davis Hake, this intersection of politics and cyber risk is where he was inspired to begin his entrepreneurial journey. My career started back actually initially looking at getting into politics. And I I ended up working on the Hill for a few different members and committees on congressional oversight and and budget waste, fraud, and abuse. And then I had a member named Jim Langevin from the small state of Rhode Island. Congressman Langevin had been one of the first political officials to really start, I think, understanding the, the broader impact of cyber risk to our society which, you know, unironically is the same type of stuff that we're working on with companies now. And, you know, it's that every company has a digital exposure, digital risk. Davis is the co-founder and vice president of policy here at Resilience. 
He says that the 2008 Stuxnet incident was the catalyst for his vision to create a business that would defend Americans against cybersecurity threats. On the Hill, we started hearing these, these concerns from nuclear experts, and uh, nobody knew what it was. But eventually, you know, it came out, and we all found out the New York Times was the Stuxnet attack. And, you know, it was then, too, it really started to strike me that, you know, this issue wasn't just some academic issue, but the larger geopolitical forces that were at work of, of treating cyber as a new domain of warfare we're going to have a direct effect on everybody, the Americans, our whole society's lives. And, and that's what really kicked me off getting interested in cybersecurity. Between Davis and Jackie's work, we can start to better understand how the private and public sectors work together on cybersecurity. How are policies put into motion, shaped, and passed? What kind of data informs what the final legislation says? How should private sector companies respond and implement these emerging policies in our operational work and strategies? In this episode, we explore all of these themes and more. To set the stage for the discussion, Davis gives us a high-level overview of how he sees the public and private partnership complementing each other in their shared goal of cybersecurity. The government has come an incredibly long way in the, the relatively short time uh, 15 or 20 years that I've been working on, on cybersecurity policy or, or broader cyber issues with this company. Uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, a lot of the uh, work of security was really the domain of, of the Department of Defense, securing classified digital information, securing communications. Actually, my father-in-law was uh, in the NSA before it was the NSA, coming out of Vietnam, working as a translator, and, you know, the security profession, you know, really grew up, right, in the military. And it's been fascinating uh, over the past two decades to see the government's role shift from only worrying about securing DOD-type uh, information to really trying to see how they can build out this public-private partnership, which today we take a lot for granted. You know, we, we take for granted that, you know, CISA, uh, is able to, to, to get ahead and work with the private sector and release out these vulnerability warnings as they come up. Uh, it, it, we take for granted the fact that, you know, the FBI is, is very capable at tracking down online criminals. Uh, and, and we take for, for granted the fact that now we have uh, a massive ecosystem of not just security vendors, but, you know, cadres of security experts and volunteers and, and white hats like our like our CISO Justin to actually defend, right? Now on the cyber insurance side, right? Like we have a very different responsibility. We share our clients' risks. We tell them this directly. Uh, it sounds like a catchphrase. It is, but it's also the truth, right? Like if our clients experience higher risk, we as their insurance provider are, are directly financially tied to that. And not only that, but our, our larger business model isn't to sell insurance, but it's to really help build their resiliency as a company. And a lot of this idea for this form from the, from the co-founders and our early investors all sort of came from this realization, you know, over or a decade ago or so that there was no part of the ecosystem that was truly aligned with trying to make companies better. And you have security vendors, you have consultants, they're all brought in for a project. But largely, it's that company's responsibility, right? And what we wanted to do was to look at how do you build 
an economic model that really helps the companies grow their maturity and, and not just try and stop attacks, but make their business more resilient to the financial hit and the, the ability to operate and serve critical infrastructure, to serve their clients that come from the, you know, the larger scale cyber attacks that we're starting to see that, that are now unfortunately more common. Jackie recognizes this trend from her point of view as well, emphasizing that the strides made in information sharing between the commercial and government sectors has led to critical breakthroughs. My world is traditionally kind of a national security world, but cyber, if all you do is sit in the national security world, you're missing pretty much everything that's happening. Not everything, but most of it. So um, very early on, I realized that while I had kind of traditionally focused on bombs and bullets, that most of the activity in cyberspace was happening in the commercial sector. So when I was at the Naval War College, I used to be a professor there, we ran a series of war games that looked at critical infrastructure. Um, and we invited the four representatives from 14 different critical infrastructure sectors, the commercial sectors. And we made the game really about like, what do you need from the U.S. government? Um, and so starting even from there, and I think that was like 2017, 2018, um, I've been focusing a lot on that intersection between what's happening in the commercial sector and then the relationship with the, um, the government sector. Actually, I've seen a lot of improvement in that relationship. You know, there's a lot more information sharing um, between the organizations. And I think you see actually a lot more innovation happening in the commercial sector when you start thinking about cyber defense and information sharing and then building resilient IT architecture that um, I think the government is learning <laughs> from. So I don't know. I, I actually, even though I see a proliferation of cyber activity, I think that it has matured a lot in the commercial sector. And I think that I see a lot of progress that's been made in the commercial sector about prioritizing cyber threats, about building cybersecurity into the software and the IT applications and the network decisions that are being made at the commercial side um, and investing a lot more resources in it. With this innovation, both the public and private sector's capabilities and defense measures have improved exponentially. But even with all of this progress, Jackie highlights that there will always be a level of uncertainty in cybersecurity and risk that is unavoidable. How humans interact with uncertainty is pretty much the bottom line of my research. And so interesting, I'm in this technology space. I'm often introduced as the technologist, but I think that's probably an incorrect uh, characterization of my work because my, my work really is, is how humans interact with technology. And so when we're thinking about how do we make policy choices for technology that we don't understand yet, and we're thinking about choices often that have implications for 5, 10, 15 years. So how do you buy the right systems? How do you develop the right and organize, create the right organizations? How do you create the right legal and policy boundaries for how we interact with these technologies? And so you're making all these decisions in the face of uncertainty. So how do you do that? So my research tries to understand whether there are generalizable patterns about how humans interact with technology or how different groups of humans interact with technology that can help us build out a policy that it um, somehow decreases that uncertainty term so that we have more informed policy choices. So, for example, in that game where we were looking at critical infrastructure, the uncertainty there was 
what is the role of the U.S. government in this situation at all? Like, let's say the worst possible um, outcomes occur from these cyber attacks or the least worst outcome, but the most probable outcome. How how can we um, develop the U.S. government's capabilities to really support the private sector? And so we played those games in order to understand what, is, what does the private sector need? Where are their holes? What are the, um, the limitations in that relationship? Other work that I do looks at the intersection of cyber vulnerabilities and nuclear stability, which thank God we don't have a lot of good data on, right? But I run war games iteratively with a lot of different types of people over a long period of time to understand well, how, how do humans react to cyber vulnerabilities? Does that influence their decisions to use nuclear weapons? Does it create fear? Does it create anxiety? And then knowing that we have these generalizable patterns of how we interact with that technology, now I can go to you know places like the State Department or the Office of Secretary of Defense, the National Security Council, and say, hey, based on this research, I recommend that we... Um, we implement the, the ver- these types of policies that might decrease the danger. And here's where I found danger in these games. So it's all about understanding generalizable patterns of how we interact with technology in order to decrease the uncertainty um, when we're building out informed policies. Does your work ever, or your peers' work, ever find its way then into Framework. So I'm thinking like the NIST CSF and things like that. I know, I know I'm getting kind of technical here on this side, but it's cybersecurity framework that's associated with critical infrastructure, right? It's, it's, it's really, when I say framework, it's very generalizable. Does work like yours or your peers end up informing things like that or, or not necessarily? I mean, that's the hope, right? right. <laughs> that's the hope is that the work that you're doing has a direct implication for uh, a policy. A lot of my work aims at strategies coming, cybersecurity strategies coming out of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So how are we thinking about building planning processes? How are we allocating for offense or defense? Uh, Does cyber deterrence work? Those types of policy questions. And then um, I did some work as an advisor on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And those, we were directly applying academic research to very practical questions that had to do with cybersecurity. And I'm going to tout the, the success, actually, of that commission because a lot of those recommendations ended up in legislation, whether it was in the National Defense Authorization Act or in actually some of the, the leading cybersecurity legislation, which has come out in the last um, two to three years, was really a product of the, the work done by people like Mark Montgomery, who did the kind of the hard work to link an academic idea to an actual policy or a law. Can you give some examples of those practical questions? Yeah. So I think, um, so talent is one of those really practical questions. So that was something we worked on extensively on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where we worked with the civilian infrastructure and then the government to identify what are the kinds of talent that are needed for cybersecurity? Um, what are the limitations in the private sector? And then what are the limitations in the government? Are there lessons that we can take from the private sector that then help us create better policies for the government? Are there things that are unique about the government that we can't replicate, you know, that make it a more difficult problem in the private sector? How do we solve that problem? And then, you know, now that we've identified the problem, okay, what are some of the initiatives that we can enact in order to create a more diverse workforce? 
um, or not only a more diverse workforce, but a larger workforce, mm-hmm. a more qualified workforce, a workforce that is a better ability to come in and out of the private sector and the public sector. So actually, Chris Inglis's office is working on a lot of those initiatives now. There are initiatives that came out that changed the hiring process for CISA and for places like Cyber Command and the Department of Defense, all with the idea that you'd be able to bring people in and out of government and private sector and cybersecurity better. So talent was one that was like extremely tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, there was a lot of work that we did in the Solarium Commission to make sure that the right organizations have the right authorities. So, you know, you might have the right amount of people, you might have the right amount of capabilities, but the government might not legally give an organization the authority it needs to to do some sort of mission. Um, So thinking through what are CISA's authorities, what are the Department of Defense's authorities, how do we... um, approve different missions that they're accomplishing. Um, All of those things are really wonky and kind of boring, but they're what facilitate information sharing between the private sector and the public sector. And then, you know, in wartime, it's actually, these are the type of boring policy decisions that are required in order for the U.S. to support, you know, for example, uh, to support defending Ukraine, for, for example. Jackie's explanation of how her research informs some of these critical frameworks and cybersecurity infrastructure that make up our national security brings us back to her point at the beginning of the episode. Focus on defending against foundational, ordinary security threats rather than theoretical, catastrophic events. But in order to shape those foundational strategies, you need data. She outlines how she gathers this data for her research and how both qualitative and quantitative methodologies contribute to her success. In my field, there are you know, different biases towards different methodologies. I would say that I'm a positivist. So I believe uh, I like to do work that involves evidence. Sometimes it's um, quantitative. So um, large amounts of information and data that is analyzed, you know, for correlations and using regressions and that kind of work. And then some of it's qualitative and where my work is most successful is where I'm able to, to combine the two. So how do I generate information about events that don't necessarily exist, right? How do we generate information about human behaviors in scenarios that either we don't already have data on or the data is bad. Um, I usually, I use, I prefer two methods. One is experimental work. So I do a lot of work where I am experimenting either, I am doing experiments with either experts or the general population to understand and to collect data on their behaviors. So I usually do what's called survey experiments. So we all know about surveys. We all get our kind of like YouGov and various surveys asking us to give information about kind of how we feel about different situations. A survey experiment is when you embed kind of a treatment and a control in order to better tease out whether the thing you care about really leads to XYZ outcomes. And so I use a lot of survey experiments to try and understand, for example, like how individuals would respond to cyber incidents or how individuals um, trust different AI enabled technologies. And then kind of the next level of that is using experiments within war games. So I run a lot of um, war games. War games really, I know it says war, but it's not necessarily about war. It's all about um, human players 
placed in scenarios with rules in which there are kind of consequences and how people react within those scenarios um, and given the rules. I do a lot of that, a lot of wargaming in order to generate information. So I ran one wargame series for about three years. This one was looking at cyber vulnerabilities and nuclear command control and communications something we don't have a lot of data on. And so I generated, I had about 580 players over three years, and that allowed us to have a lot of quantitative data about behaviors, um, but also a lot of qualitative data. So these were kind of notes that people wrote, and these were um, facilitator notes. This was kind of commentary that people had. And so the, the mixture of being able to provide quantitative, 580 people did this thing, X amount of times, and then also using qualitative to be able to explain why that occurred. That's kind of where I get the best evidence for my positivist approach. So yeah, I'm always trying to generate data. I'm always trying to evaluate that data. I'm always trying to interrogate that data um, and then trying to use different types of data in order to understand not just kind of what the probability of an outcome is, but why that outcome might occur. That's awesome. And I think just for the audience, here, the use of quantitative data on experts, you know, comes from the decision psychology, I suppose, would be the domain that we're referring to here. But it's still quantitative. A lot of security folks, when they think quantitative, they're going to think like a long, long run frequency. They're thinking long run frequency of, of events, you know, car crashes, smoking, think about insurance here. They, they think that. But what we're what you're referring to here is the quantification of how people um, think and react and respond to, to things. I think in cyber, sometimes there's this focus because really, and especially in the commercial sector, there's so much data. And now I think we're starting to realize, well, we can't just collect data on events. You have to collect data on behaviors in order to understand why the events occur. I think right. it's a, a slightly different, like it's a slightly different shift in the mentality so that you're not just, you know, giving information information about what occurred, but also trying to explain why something occurs more or less than something else. I think one place where this is easy and, and has gotten a lot of traction recently is in non-expert sort of security testing. What's your take on sort of the line of humans as the weakest link and the our ability to train, you know, the just common common person, the common employee to to consider security when they're going about their day-to-day job? And can we make them be sort of make rational decisions with respect to security risks um, as, as part of their, their normal business? I think one of the most interesting phenomenon that I found in my research, but also other researchers have found um, looking at how individuals respond to cybersecurity is that rationally individuals can know the threat exists and yet not take baseline measures uh, to deal with it. So um, if I knew uh, that there was a really, you know, if there was a, a giant attack coming to my house, I would probably um, make sure that my house is defended and ready to go. And the more visceral that threat is, the more likely I am to, to do that. What we find with cyber is that cyber doesn't, we don't treat cyber like we would other threats, like kind of more um, physical threats, like, snakes or loud noises or heights. I mean, these are things that are kind of like evolutionarily conditioned into us to know this is a threat. And I will, I, I react to them. I, we evolutionarily um, 
know that we have to react and try and elicit a response. And kind of the largest like, puzzle in my research has been how difficult it is to elicit a response from a mm-hmm. cyber attack. Like you just don't, um, we just don't get that kind of like fight or flight response. In the games, people actually will say, oh, we'll have to send that to attribution or uh, they'll dismiss it, right? They dismiss the vulnerabilities. And what's interesting is I have other um, colleagues, uh, Nadia Kostyuk, for example, at Georgia Tech, who's looked at this um, from a very individual level, like a micro foundation, right? So not, you know, cyber nuclear, but like, do you use two-factor authentication? Do you Mm -hmm. update your passwords? And she finds a similar phenomenon where individuals can know that this is the right thing to do and yet not do it. And so... um, this seems to be more and more kind of a truth about cyber where we we feel anxiety, we recognize rationally that it exists and yet struggle to actually kind of do the day-to-day things that are required in order to mitigate that threat. And it's because the threat is more insidious, long-term, virtual, and difficult to kind of connect the threat to the effect. And because of that, I think it significantly decreases the kind of human response that we would need or or that we would see in other domains when the threat exists. Um, but did we know that, you know, before we started doing this experimental research, we had a clue. We we're like, something's happening here. People are not responding. We're very confused. But it took, you know, lots of different iterations of lots of different kind of experimental approaches for us to understand they're not responding to cyber. And here's kind of why we think that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Is it hopeless? Are there lessons learned from other sorts of non-physical threats? I mean, I think this is actually some place where it needs to go in the future. So we've spent a lot of time gazing at the problem and saying, okay, this is where the problem is. And the next step I think is using those methods to understand then what does change behaviors? Mm-hmm. Okay, like what are the incentives? And this is where it goes back to kind of decision science. And what are incentives that individuals have in order to act more rationally in this sphere? I think if you look at, um, ransomware actors, criminals, they're maybe your most like rational actor out there. They are like highly, highly motivated by financial incentives. And so if I'm like creating an economic actor, that's like my most rational ransomware actors, right? So you should look at, you know, what might be interesting in the future is someone to do studies of how do these entities protect themselves in terms of cybersecurity? And then what are they doing that mitigates their incentives to take these attacks in the first place, right? So that's a kind of an interesting way to go at looking at what is effective and not effective is take a, a highly rational actor. And then I think more of these micro studies where you're looking at individual behaviors and trying to understand what motivates us to change our um, behavior. So I have a very specific question. This is in relationship to an article you've recently published. So in this article, the article is titled, Trust is the First Casualty. And in it, you state, amongst many other things, but you state this. Focusing too closely on theoretical catastrophes ignores the need for ordinary resilience. So can you talk more about that, the article, and what you mean there, the distinction between perhaps hyper-focus on catastrophes versus the need for ordinary resilience? Yeah, and I think in cyber, we have a tendency, because we know it's important to use analogies to try and create evocative responses. So cyber Pearl Harbors, cyber Armageddon's, cyber 9-11's. 
cyber war, <laughs> even cyber attack, right? And, and the idea here is we know that 9-11, Armageddon, all these things, we know that they create a physical, emotional response. We know they're important. So we know cyber is important. So if we link these two together, people will understand cyber is important. So you, you get an overinvestment in one-off and an underinvestment in the day-to-day -day shoring app. In my field, and when I talk, you know, about Department of Defense, when it comes to this, this means that you know you're not investing in um, resiliency measures like having backups, <laughs> um, practicing what happens when a system goes down. These are boring and expensive, and really they, they end up being extremely expensive, um, and they they generally degrade efficiency in some way, but they make it less likely that the whole foundation is going to fall apart while you're standing on it. Um, and I think, I think the commercial sector is actually learning this more while the government is maybe still focused on the bomb coming through the roof instead of the termites from the ground up. Jackie's insights here underscore a couple key issues. First, there is power in understanding human behavior and using it to shape cybersecurity strategies. Second, no matter how much data we have access to, there will always be unknown variables and uncharted territory as technology continuously evolves. This is why it is so essential to protect against the smaller, more ordinary threats that cause the termites in the floorboards. Davis shares in her hope that recent events like ransomware attacks are increasing policymakers' awareness of the termites. I shudder to think about some of the, the days when I was a young staffer uh, in my 20s and, and uh, I was working on a lot of these issues without having first been in the private sector. So <laughs> I, my views have evolved a little bit. But, you know, I still firmly believe that the government has a strong role to play in, in building a strong relationship with, you know, our most critical infrastructure, right? Like power, water safety, all those things. And I think that, um, you know, more needs to be done to operationalize our capability to support the private sector in that partnership. Uh, you look at areas where um, DOD has made investments, uh, wonderful capabilities for the Department of Defense to serve their industrial base. You look at where the Department of Justice has made investments. I mean, it, you know, we don't catch every cyber criminal, but if you are a major cyber criminal operating in, in U.S. Or, or areas with extradition to the U.S., like uh, you're going to get caught, right? And they have FBI has a wonderful record. I, I look at CISA, and they have done so much over the past 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 even like you know four years with, with really you know starting with Brian Krebs and a lot of what he did to help raise the profile of them. But you know we still we still lack on that third stool of the leg. You know a lot of the investment and resources to stand up um, uh, a really strong public-private partnership. And, you know, I just saw in the, the recent vetting negotiations that they're, they're looking at cutting funding from CISA, from the Department of Justice, uh, you know, from uh, the GSA to do federal IT modernization. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, as we always look to, to protect funding, critical areas that support the most vulnerable of our population or that support our national defense, I think cybersecurity has to be there. It's got to become one of those issues that, you know, whenever it's on the chopping block, you know, our, our legislators look at that and say, like, why are we cutting cybersecurity? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure that there's the same education 
certainly in the legislature uh, now that, that, there, that there has been traditionally on this. Um, I think more more expertise needs to be needs to be done, and it's good the folks that are up there know. But I think the broader our, our broader public sector needs to be aware about how critical priority this is. You know, when the colonial pipeline attack happened, I thought that was going to change. It sort of felt like this is the moment. Everyone feels it. The real people standing, you know, standing in line for gas in the southeast, and it was top news story for you know for days. It felt like yeah. the moment that was going to sort of change change that mentality a little bit. Do you think that's stuck or is, or in, I don't know, have we moved on and forgotten? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, right? We used to um, war game out, you know, what it might look like if the, the power grid went down on a, a section of the, um, you know, the U S uh, or what a major attack against the financial sector would look like and, and how we'd respond and everything. And, you know, the reality of cyber that we have seen so far, not saying that those aren't, possibilities because they, they certainly are. But so far we have seen the death by a thousand cuts mentality uh, effect. And at, at many levels, right, that makes it an easier problem to ignore. It also makes it a much more dangerous problem. I, I do have some hope and it's it's been unfortunate that this has happened, but I think, you know, a, a tactical mistake by cyber criminals has really been, you know, a shift from you know, the, the large companies that absorb the hit and everybody expects to get attacked and, and everybody, you know, comes out okay in the end, uh, to really going after smaller and medium-sized businesses. I shudder to think about some of the, the days when I was a young staffer uh, in my 20s and, and uh, I was working on a lot of these issues without having first been in the private sector. So <laughs> I, my views have evolved a little bit, not just focusing on nation-state actors, but really focusing on ransomware actors. They've started to have a lot of successes, even with some arrests. Even the small shift that Davis mentions about the Department of Justice finally focusing on ransomware actors is a sign that the government is moving towards a more resilient cybersecurity model. And the power of these small steps forward cannot be underestimated. There will always be uncertainty in cyber risk. Ultimately, Jacqueline reminds us that cyber resilience isn't about decreasing threats to zero, but forging on despite them. You're never going to get the uncertainty of a cyber risk to zero. You're not, at the best, you can understand the bounds of that uncertainty. But I think uncertainty is actually kind of a, a unique characteristic of this domain, as we would call it in my world. And so the strategies are not about decreasing uncertainty to zero, but instead creating a way to forge on despite uncertainty. I think if you watch kind of Ukraine, which has just been extraordinary with their resilience, it hasn't been their ability to avoid all bad acts, but their ability to persevere despite attacks. Uh, I mean, if you look really at their IT capability, right? I mean, there were just um, extensive attacks from the Russians, especially in kind of those early months. And yet they built this resilience to be able to command and control despite significant setbacks in the, the infrastructure that they were using to command and control their forces. I mean, I, that kind of resilience is really remarkable. Cybersecurity is a huge concern for everyone in the country, all of our businesses, all of our personal lives. And it's so important that our government works in partnership with us and the companies we work with and for uh, to solve, you know, help solve this problem for everyone. It's, it's really got to be a collaborative effort. 
For principles to become enforced practices, it really does take extrinsic factors to combine with what experts are already trying to do. In this case, we've seen how policy can really help us move towards cyber resilience, and it's coming fast to everybody now. Thank you to Jackie and Davis for their time, expertise, and valuable insights, and to our production team at Come Alive Creative. And thank you for listening. Follow the Building Cyber Resilience podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next show.